Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 556. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this wonderful network, go visit their site, evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with Evelina Delane. Evelina, who was born in the Ukraine, is a London-based classical and jazz pianist, composer, author, performance coach, educator, and producer known for her crossover composition style. In this conversation with Evelina, we discuss her journey from a small town in Ukraine to London, the astonishing encounter of her husband, her travels around the world through playing music, Evelina's impressive feats of playing a grand piano at altitude and atop an active volcano, as well as her music-based therapeutical approach inside the music. A fascinating story. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And if you have a little moment, please do go drop in a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Evelina. Delane, how lovely to have you on my show. Um, we met maybe a year ago. I'm not even sure, but I've had, I feel so many experiences with you, whether it's been at a dinner party in a seminar or lying underneath your piano. Evelina Delane, who, in your words, are you? Oh my God, is that what you're opening with? Yeah. <laughs> One of those easy questions, right? That's it. Um, yeah. Uh, wow. Okay. I wasn't prepared to answer that. Uh, I mean, I can tell you a couple of my identities, you know, a couple of uh, uh, things that mostly describe what I do. So, yes, I am a musician. I'm a high performer. I, I have a world record in the highest performance on a grand piano. I am writing my dissertation in music therapy for business. So I'm just completing my, I just submitted my research proposal and it's been approved. So that's good. Uh, so basically, yes, I'm writing how to turn stress into you stress, which is a positive form of stress. So we're turning distress into you stress and utilizing it to help our work performance, because uh, basically I, as a performer myself, I like to uh, get other people to their highest performance. Um, I'm married, I'm happily married. Uh, so I think that's what I am as well, a wife. What else am I? I'm Ukrainian. Um, I wrote the book, but decided not to publish it because oh. I, <laughs> I, I got everything I wanted out of that. So, uh, yeah, those are some of the identities. And then let's see how that all relates to the actual self. Beautiful. Well, you know, I, I mean, I'm writing much about this notion of identities and, and trying to find congruence between them. Uh, and it's, you know, as, as especially when we have a little ambition, we've traveled, there can be many parts to us. So it is, it is often a, a confusing thing. Um, at least uh, it's a work in progress, I suppose, right? That is absolutely right. And 
heart's work in my work as well. So I, I look at what kind of parts of or subpersonalities we're made of. I, I refer to Richard Schwartz's work on internal family systems. Also, we all know um, uh, Eric Burns' work on, you know, whatever parts we're made up of or whatever identities. And uh, what is there to unite all of that? You know, what is there that joins those parts of us? And uh, as a Jungian, I would say there is an underlying self. And also speaking of traveling, it's so interesting. I've been to 100 countries and uh, you don't come back the same person. So who are you really? Hmm. You know, after you came back from your travels, you're already a different person. Yeah, patchwork. So, mm. Evelina, um, you were you were born in Ukraine. You live in England. I wanted uh, first to discuss your journey from Ukraine to land in England, because uh, you came here, as I remember it, uh, about twenty years ago. Yeah, twenty-two years ago. Yeah, two thousand and two. I uh, yeah, very. Um, it was a long journey. I was born in Soviet Union, so Ukraine kind of was a part of Soviet Union back then. I was born in the 70s in the Soviet Union, in the Soviet system. I went to Soviet school. I experienced that system a little bit as an outsider because my mom was a dissident, so we always looked at the system critically. And recently, I have been recognizing a lot of those kind of ex-Soviet traits, obviously, in a conflict between Russia and Ukraine. Um, so it kind of helps to have a background in, you know, in Soviet culture, so to say. Um, and then what happened? When I was born in this tiny uh, mining town, uh, they found the uranium there in, uh, in the 90s. And so maybe we were supercharged in, the, in some, way but I remember I was seven years old and I went to a mine to you know that's what we did in <laughs> those years we didn't have many places to play so we used to play on the mine in one of those pits you know left over from the mining and I remember looking at it and thinking am I from here uh, and it felt so absurd because I've never seen any other worlds ever I, I had a strange feeling that I didn't belong to that world fully, even though that was the only world I knew, but I had this internal notion of other worlds. And also same year, my mom's best friend showed me how to play Blue Moon. Hmm. And uh, before that, I only played classical music and I hated it because it was kind of imposed on me as my mom's gestalt that she wanted to close but when i heard jazz and when i had like my first experience with playing jazz i was like oh yeah that's where i'm from i'm from the land of jazz like i had mm. this real strange recognition as i knew what that was about and i think recently i have reevaluated that moment because i was in wales last summer on the day when super blue moon was there and i remembered that story and i was like Wait, am I here because of that one experience um, 40 years ago, learning Blue Moon and opening the new worlds? So that's where my journey probably started. 
to different worlds, to English-speaking worlds, and um, rewind probably to when I was 25. That's when I first arrived to the UK after having worked in Japan as Marilyn Monroe double. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, that happened. And then I came here um, on a student visa. I had many adventures. And uh, yeah, um, since then I've been here. I've made my life here. I feel like my home is here. But recently, in the last few years, I have reevaluated my relationship with Ukraine as well. I have rediscovered uh, my Ukrainian roots, but also many other roots. I just had my DNA test, and turns out I'm a four percent Mayan, <laughs> and I that that was completely bizarre. Especially a few years I've been following Mayan culture, having lived in Guatemala for a while. So that just yeah, what a patchwork we really are, and mm. uh, you know, like. I discovered Mayan calendar kind of in Guatemala, and I have been following Mayan calendar since then, finding that it's quite life, and then finding out that I'm 4% pre-Columbian Mayan. It goes like, wow, what happened? Were they seafarers? How did my great, 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 great grandfather got to Europe? How incredible is that? Like to think what happened in like those thousands of years, 500 years before you were born, um, what did this go, those people go through? And uh, it just makes you kind of more glad to be alive, you know, honoring all those people who mm. came before you. It's an interesting thing to think about that we are just transitory on this earth and that we, we carry a responsibility uh, of sorts to respect and honor the the past generations. So uh, uh, right now um, you have this great Wikipedia page and I'd love for you to talk about your world records because you have at least two, if I understand correctly. Um, and the, let's, let's talk about the, the first one where you performed in the Himalayas at nearly 5,000 meters. What, what on earth inspired you to, to want to lug a grand piano, or I think it was a grand piano, all the way up 5,000 meters and play it in the freezing cold? Uh, yes, it wasn't my idea. It's one of those synchronicities that happen in your life where uh, so many things collide together. Uh, so seven years ago, my mom died unexpectedly, and it was a really uh, shocking experience. Um, and um, she was also my teacher, my first music teacher. And um, having been bound by that family system, I was looking for ways to honor her, make her life um, meaningful, valuable, uh before even thinking of my own life which is you know this is a kind of maybe a rite of passage or was it wrong i'm not sure now so um i was looking for things how to make this all matter how this to make this all meaningful and as i was doing that i bought a clavinova so i wanted to practice more i wanted to play more classical music and this clavinova 
is mahogany and I was looking for a mahogany chair and I couldn't find it. So I went to one of those uh, antique piano shops in Camden Market, thinking maybe they have an antique mahogany piano chair. And I entered this little shop with lots of pianos and it was kind of like uh, dust, but like, you know, kind of movie looking shops, you know, uh, from many years ago, very vintage. And I heard the grumpy voice from like behind the piano saying, we're closed. And I said, I will ask if you have a chair. And the guy came out um, and he said, what kind of chair are you looking for? And so I'm looking for a mahogany piano bench. And he said, I don't have anything in mahogany. And that's when I saw my piano. I'm looking at it right now. I wish I had it in shot. So I saw a beige grand piano and uh, I uh, I asked, what is this piano? And he said, are you a pianist? And I said, yeah. He said, well, go play it. And I started playing E-flat uh, Nocturne by Chopin. And uh, he was shocked. He said, that was my grandfather's favorite Nocturne. The first thing he and my grandfather was supposed to play on Titanic. But my grandmother saw a dream that the boat was going to sink. And he was already in the docks boarding the Titanic. And she grabbed his legs and she said, I wouldn't let you go. And so one of the replacement pianists had to go and his grandfather uh, had to stay in the UK and then he had Desmond's father and then Desmond's father had Desmond and here we are now being connected to that grandfather through the nocturne of Chopin and Desmond said oh this piano chose you and I said but I just bought a clavinola how can I just buy a Blutner grand piano and he said, no, I think it shows you. You can come back and play at any time. So I came back next day, and then I come back, came back two days later. And then he said, would you like to play the highest concert in the world? And before he even finished it, I said, yeah. He goes, you can play your music, and you can play Chopin. And I said, yeah. That seems like a great way to honor my mom. And uh, so we started planning the expedition. And in those days, I was studying a lot Maslow's pyramid, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Obviously, he didn't draw a pyramid. <laughs> um, so um, I was thinking, that what, what a great kind of passage through this need of, you know, esteem and achievement, right? And then maybe I can transcend that after that. Mm. And um, so we did it a year and a half later uh, with Desmond. Uh, we uh, took the piano up the Himalayas. Um, there was a road, so it wasn't anything like a helicopter or anything like that. Oh, I see. Mm -hmm. There was a road. Yeah, so you could drive it. I mean, I'm not going to say it was easy. But like we drove it and then we only dragged it maybe 200 meters. It was hailing, it was snowing. It was very, uh, 
It was very uh, hard, but I did it. I played for two hours. I said it was in honor of my mom. Uh, one week later, Desmond passed away. Oh, wow. And on the day that my Guinness record was approved, my cat passed away. So, and so my mom was 69, Desmond was 69, and my cat was 13, which makes him 69 in human years. And I think that's when I was like, okay, uh, what a strange run. I, I was studying Hero's Journey, I was studying synchronicities, I was looking for uh, what it matters. In Desmond's honor, I decided to play on a volcano. Uh, so, basic, actually, it didn't start like that. I went to uh, Guatemala to drink some ayahuasca to make sense of all of this, what happened. And as I drank ayahuasca, I found myself as a jagger. So, I was like, okay, that is so interesting. So, I stayed in Guatemala for a while and I started talking to mayan shamans and they said actually who are you in mayan calendar and then we checked it and i was a jagger and i was like okay maybe i'll stay here longer to find out what it's all about and as i stayed there i met one of the shamans and she said oh do you want to play on a volcano didn't you think of that before and i was like actually i went to the volcano my first day in guatemala and i thought wouldn't that be amazing and she thought i know where you can get a grand piano and so, uh, yeah, I did it. And uh, first I played on a mountain on top of um, a sacred lake. And I wanted to honor the lake and the spirits of the lake and local people who helped me. And then we decided to play, but then we didn't know how, how do we organize it? Who do we call? Who do you call to play on a volcano? <laughs> so I just went on Google Maps and I just Googled you know, Volcano Pacaya. And I just looked at the numbers that came up and there was this hotel called Salamander or something or whatever. I just called the number and I said, do you speak English? And they said, no. So I called my friend who spoke spoke Spanish and I said, can you please translate that? I want to play on the volcano. And he translated it and they said, oh, tomorrow somebody will call you. And so next day, somebody called me who spoke Spanish and I said, I want to play on a volcano. And they go, how about next weekend? I go like, okay, that can be arranged. And uh, so I took this whole expedition to that volcano. And uh, it was, you know, a strenuous journey. No one didn't have a road, so we had to carry it. Eight Mayan men had to carry the grand piano up the volcano. We went quite close to the crater. It's an active volcano. And I played a sunset concert and a sunrise concert. And after that, um, I didn't feel the need to enter it in the book of records anymore. Because first of all, you have to pay for it. And second of all, I just felt like I did it for different reasons. You know, I didn't need to. Uh, I didn't need the external validation anymore. So I'm going to call it my unofficial record. I'm pretty sure I haven't found anybody playing on the volcano uh, before, but maybe they did since. 
but yeah, I did it. And uh, it was a very transformational journey. After that, I went traveling for six months, kind of writing it all down and thinking what it all meant. And yeah, it, it took me on new roads, you know, that eventually I climb Mont Blanc and I jump from the top of it with a paraglide, but without a piano. <laughs> so that was like, <laughs> that was just for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, that sounds good. Yeah. You, sound, you sound like someone, Evelina, who is very in touch with your surroundings, the, the signs that are out there, maybe abstract and subliminal. Is, is that a fair statement? Yes, I feel that I constantly live in this liminal space, a space between myth and reality. I study myths a lot. I study synchronicity a lot. I, as I mentioned, I'm a Jungian. I went to an institute to get my studies. And I feel like in my life, the the line between archetypes and reality is blurred. Archetype between the archetype, the myth and reality is blurred. Like if other people talk about being lost in the forest, it's a metaphor. In my case, it will be an actual reality. And I'll have a grand piano with me, which is what we got lost in the forest uh, with a grand piano. And then a guy who looked like an angel came down the mountain and said, actually, you can't pass that way. You have to go that way. And we were like, with a grand piano? He goes like, yeah, you can pass. And how does a Mayan peasant know where we can pass with a grand piano? Why wasn't he surprised about those things? Like, you know, people you meet on your road, was it always meant to happen? Uh, or... Why was it there? I mean, am I special or, I mean, I don't think so. But how come millions of ways had to collide in that one space-time continuum for me to, for example, get married to a guy from my village? You know, how weird is that? Uh, where, like an alchemist, you go all around the world, but then you find a treasure in the land you're running away from. Um, and can you predict it or what led you to it? So I always think about those mystical experiences and, you know, I think it's fun and, uh, we will never find out, I think why, uh, but it's fun to think about it while we're here. Well, and, 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 uh, I certainly recall how you described your encounter with Nikita, because while you both came from the same town, small town, small mining town, you met elsewhere in the most uh, peculiar and different type of circumstances. Yes, uh, and connected to grandfathers again. It, it was very peculiar because I was in Ukraine as well, in Odessa, visiting my uh, relatives. And uh, through a very bizarre set of circumstances, I ended up in this uh, city square, uh, looking at a tree that strangely turns out to be Mayan tree of happiness and love. And it was a very strange 
tree. It's called Catalpis. It's not a very common tree. There are a few in London. I try and visit them as my sacred trees. And so basically I was with a friend of mine who was also a psychotherapist and we were looking up this tree. She said, do you know what this tree is called? And I said, no. And she said, this tree is called Catalpis. And at that very moment, the guy came up to us who was also looking said, what is this tree called? And I said, now that I knew just for about two I said, oh, this tree is called Catalpis. It just made me feel very knowledgeable, even though it's only been like five seconds since I've learned the name of this tree. And he said, this is so weird. Um, I was just thinking my grandfather showed me this tree when I was small. And I was just thinking my grandfather is telling me this tree is called. And then I saw you put the tree. So find out what this tree is called. And I was like, what? So your grandfather took you to this tree, where? And he goes, oh, it's some small town that nobody knows. Check me, I know some small towns. And he goes, nah, nobody knows that town. And I said, I know some small towns. And he said, oh, this place is called Yellow Waters. I was like, oh, wow, that's where I'm from. And nobody knows that place it's a it's kind of during soviet union it was one of those um closed places it was not um on a map or anything because it was part of a defense system because that's where the mine and then they found uranium there so obviously it was one of those towns that was widely known even with the soviet union so and it's a very small place. I think it only has like 30,000 people there and you don't usually meet those people traveling. Um, especially that I've been in UK for 20 years and I've been traveling to 100 countries. And after I buried my mom, I was like, I'm done with that town. I'm never coming back. I want to put it behind me. Like That town only brought me misery. And um, yeah, long story short, for the last three years, that town have been been bringing me happiness and made me reconnect with those parts of me uh, and uh, bring back those rejected parts of me that belong to that town, that to that upbringing, uh, to that culture, made me appreciate it as uh, the love-giving parts of me and the love-giving parts of my life. And uh, yeah, how bizarre another grandfather bringing people together what is it about a very interesting experience with your grandfather indeed that's something i was thinking about as i listened to you the world's best known investor and wall street expert warren buffett once said wall street is the only place that people ride to in a rolls royce to get advice from those who take the subway mr buffett's quote is remarkably accurate but how many people would rather receive advice from him than someone simply guessing Welcome to Buy, Hold, Sell, your single source for Wall Street knowledge and profitable guidance. Please join me, Todd Schoenberger, and fellow trader Tobin Smith, as well as host Veronica Dudo, for a podcast known to move the needle for investors. Tobin and I are seasoned Wall Street executives with deep investment experience, and we are prepared to share our advice to those who choose to listen. Download Buy, Hold, Sell today on the Evergreen Podcast Network or your favorite podcast channel. So um, you 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 get married uh, to Nikita. 
and um and then i wanted to also so let's just go back one 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 moment just back to the world record thing with desmond because um i i remember myself when i was at university i had this grand plan of of getting a guinness book of world records uh, we're talking about this in the um in the 1980s and um but i i didn't i was more it was more a harebrained idea than anything else did you did desmond had he already evaluated that this would be a world record i mean did you have to sort of did you want to check this out before you did it and then because if you you know if you if you were at 4997 and there was someone who did it at 5001 that would have been a silly thing to what extent did you have to research where you're going how high you had to be how long did you have to do to make it guinness book of world record enough uh he did he did evaluate it he did his research he knew that nobody else did it um, at that altitude, at least nobody that we could Google or, well, obviously we did check the records. And back then for us, it was about the record. Now looking back at it, it's been five years. Obviously, you know, it wasn't about the achievement. It was about who you become as a result of that. But back then it was very much uh, planned um, it was his idea, as I said, I would probably not think of something like that. However, it did satisfy my mom's ambitions at the time that were living through me because my mom always had this perfectionist idea of like, you have to be the best, you have to be the best. And obviously, how can you be the best pianist? I mean, I can't be. I couldn't even play for 14 years because I had a repetitive strain injury. So... Um, I couldn't be the best classical pianist, um, obviously, um, uh, but I could be the highest. Hmm. I could be the highest. So in a way, I felt like, wow, if obviously I am a person who couldn't play for 14 years and I have restored my hands to the point where I can play now, but I can play at that extreme altitude, extreme weather, extreme cold, extreme conditions, uh, Desmond and I did have creative differences a lot. However, on the day, everything came together. He was only gonna like do it for 10 minutes, but I ended up playing for two hours. It wasn't necessary for the record. I mean, you could get a record even if you played for 10 minutes. But I played for two hours and uh, on the way down the mountain, uh, we saw a snow leopard and uh, because it's such an elusive uh, cat, they call it a ghost cat because even people who lived there 40 years have not seen the snow leopard. So, and the taxi driver just stopped and he was sitting right on the road, on the same road we took our piano uh, up and down and the, 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 the driver stopped and he said, look, snow leopard, and we all got out. And we looked at the snow leopard and he looked at us and he wasn't moving, he wasn't running away. Uh, but we were chased to get back into the car and go down because one person suffered from the mountain uh, sickness. Uh, but the snow leopard was there and I was like, well, you know, if we're thinking in poetic mythological terms, was it the spirit of the Himalayas that blast our adventure i don't know did the mountains want to hear the music 
how do we praise nature? I mean, I am definitely not religious in a in a like a common sense of the word. I do not believe, um, you know, in Christian God or anything like that. But when we talk about divine, uh, you can definitely feel it, right? What Druids called Awen, what is it? We can feel it, right? We feel that feeling of awe. Um, is that when we experience divine, call it God, call it, call it divinity, call it participation mystic, call it Awen. And then for me, I experience it. I experience it when I'm up in the mountains. I experience it when I'm standing on top of the mountain. Uh, that's when I feel that Awen, right? But then somehow life made me a musician. So what better way is the divine but with your skills, with your music? If I'm a child of nature, which we all are, did nature give me those skills? And then did nature give the skills to the teachers who honed my skills? And how did I get here? Did I get here because I'm a child of nature? But then what better way to praise God, to praise nature, than to use my skills in order to praise nature? So I kind of thought, yeah, people said, it's weird. Why are you taking pianos into the mountains? And I'd say, it would be weird not to. Hmm. It would be weird for me not to praise nature with everything I have to offer. And this is why I didn't want the second world record, because I didn't do it for the record in the end of the day. Well, yes, I did it to test my limits. And yes, of course, we have ambition. That's what shows us the expansion you know ambition leads you to expansion and when you're expanded you go like ah whatever this ambition doesn't matter but only from your expanded self right mm -hmm. once you've got there once you got there you can't got you can't get to the transcendent part of the pyramid without you know having a self-esteem but how self-esteem you do need some sort of validation yeah you do need some sort of common ground with the world because you know if you're sitting in your cave having never had an external validation having never achieved an ambition um you know and you heard the tree fall but then nobody knows right and then you how do we check ourselves do we find ourselves in the eyes of the beholder at the beginning we do we do need it in the world to know our value and once you reflected enough might not get reflected but do we bypass that step i don't think we can so now i can put people under my grand piano and share that participation mistake and because I have this record in the highest performance, 
I do have this confidence as once upon a time the highest performing performer on earth. My record was beaten, by the way. Oh. <laughs> yeah, a year ago. Which is fine. I mean, I'm fine with that. I had it for four years, like an Olympic champion, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, yeah. every everything is transient if nature yeah. is <clears throat> to, to to teach us anything. So for the last part of our chat, let's talk about um, music, its role, and and what you're doing with therapy. Because at the end of the day, not everyone's a musician, but pretty much everybody likes some form of music. Yes. And, you know, um, being a researcher now, it, it is fascinating how much you can discover about what music is to us. One of the, I mean, we always knew music was a proverbial language, right? Mm -hmm. We always knew uh, that every culture on earth has some form of music. We always knew that early hominids could make music before they could make words. Yeah, we always knew that the first thing people did was take a stick and bang it on a rock. Percussion as the first instrument, right? Then bone flute, 40,000 years old. Did people speak before they could play that bone flute or hum to their babies, lullabies? So we always knew music was proverbial. We always knew music was ingrained in every culture, in every part of the world. However, the latest research from 2024 by a Korean researcher named Jung, coincidentally, <laughs> strange, strange uh, of all names, his name is Jung. He proved that not music is a proverbial kind of uh, language he proved that music is a common trait which is even higher than any kind of language or perception skills he proved that ai speaking of your um, field of expertise ai can discern music um, uh, in between all the other types of sounds so Jung postulated, the Korean Jung, not Swiss Jung, he postulated that music is a common human trait uh, that made us humans because we needed to process sounds of nature. That's why we evolved to have a neural network that processes sounds of nature, which is a music network. So it is a common human trait. So, isn't it interesting that we can always rely on some type of musical experience to make us closer to ourselves? Obviously, it harmonizes two hemispheres because one is verbal and one is nonverbal. And what is the bridge between verbal and nonverbal is music. Both of them can understand music, you know? Basically, when I put people under a grand piano, right? And I make them experience music not only as a spatial audio experience, but also physically, because you physically feel those vibrations, you know, you, you feel those frequencies, you know, you can hold on to the soundboard, you feel the music pass through you. It's like the ultimate gong bar with probably more frequencies. The piano is 
vibrating at more types of frequencies than the gong bath. And then what happens? What happens? Uh, I started studying those experiences and they turn out to be pretty universal. I've tested it on about maybe 200 people, more than 200 people. And I always hear uh, similar types of themes like feeling of unity, feeling of oneness, uh, flow, falling through the gap, um, not being aware of time. Um, a lot of people get images. A lot of people get a feeling of overwhelm, but like that nice overwhelm where they feel whole. And uh, so in my research, I study how that reduces stress, turns negative affective states into positive or desired affective states, and consequently enhance performance. How can you perform when you're stressed? Uh, what about you, Minter? How do you perform under stress? Well, like you said at the very beginning, there's always, there's good stress and bad stress. And uh, I, I tend to lean into the stress. Uh, maybe I, I have this meta moment when I'm, for example, in sports, I will, I can play a friendly game and then there's the a competitive game where there's something on the line. And the idea is, well, you know, this service, I have to get it in. Because if I don't, I will lose this game. And, and so I, I, I kind of relish those moments. I really like, all right, this is it. This is show up time. And so I try to lean into the stress of it and, and move from fear into some other zone. That's how I think about stress. And I also um, have a little ritual before I play any um, competitive sport, I will listen to music before. In fact, I listen to one specific song that's important to me called um, Crazy World by Aslan, the Irish band. Um, but it's a, it's a, there's a ritual element to it. There's a connecting into the vibrations. And the, the further thought I have, which I don't remember if I shared this with you, is that I, I'm strongly convinced that music is a the, the best way of proving the theory of string, the string theory, which astrophysicists will talk about as an unproven, unprovable type of uh, existence, but that we are all made up of little strings, that the smallest plank length material in the world is a little vibrating string which forms atoms, which forms molecules, which forms our bodies, and that we are all vibrating with the music. The, and this is cosmic music. There's, uh, you know, the natural music and, and other things. And, and actually, we probably even between us in terms of people have our musical strings vibrating when we connect. Uh, that's, that's my unscientific approach because I'm just more of a creative thinker when it comes to that. And, and I love the, my experience under your piano because there was a, it's a very visceral experience. Like you say, I'm a big fan of the Grateful Dead. And when they, they have two drummers and 
it, it can happen in other moments, like with a bass guitar in particular. But when the drummers start doing their solos, usually in the second set, they will have a 30, 40 minute drum solo. And, and, and the drums, when you're into it, especially if you're <laughs> dosed, you feel the drums into your system through a beautiful sound system, of course. And that, that feeling is, is hormonally interesting. You're just, whoa, you're, you, you're really in the flow at that moment. Of course, dosed helps. <laughs> yes. And you know, uh, I feel like, um, I can relate so much to what you're saying. That's why I called my experience inside the music. You are literally music. And one of the research, uh, research, um, one of the researchers, what am I saying? Yeah. One of the studies I have read says that music is always a participation and body experience because you can only complete experience of music with your body. And this is exactly what we're talking about. Um, you know, if the tree falls into the forest, into the in the forest, and nobody is there to hear the tree, did it? I play music, and you are disembodied at that time, whatever that means. Did I really play music? Um, even when I play, right? I use my body to play. When you listen, you use your body to listen. And when you experience, you use your body to experience. And this experience touches all senses and all parts. Of and this is why we are so fortunate to be able to find ourselves inside the music, inside that experience. And uh, I always feel this participation mystic in a big theater or in a big concert hall when people start clapping. I cannot help but cry my eyes out every time there is a big ovation going on. Why? Because say if you're in the Royal Albert Hall or O2, right? There's 5,000 people, 10,000 people, and they all get synchronized. When they clasp, it's kind of whatever. Then you all start getting synchronized. You all clap in sync. 5,000 people, 10,000 people. Obviously it happens in football games, but like I'm not a big football fan, but like people start singing or clapping and it all sinks. 10,000 people sync up in that moment, right? How, if you put 10 metronomes, 20 metronomes, 50 metronomes, and you start them all separately, do you know that they're all gonna sync up? Uh, you can find those videos. It's bizarre. All the metronomes are going to sync up, even no matter when you started them, right? Same happens with us, with people. We share that field, and often it happens in participation myst uh, mystic experiences, like concerts or a uh, football game, right? Mm. Or theater, where we get immersed into this field body right uh, uh, field theory string theory 
we can go really deep into science. I mean, we're not scientists, so we're looking at it as creative researchers. So we probably would not be able to explain it from a physics point of view. But then we take these frequencies and vibrations and we take them from the esoteric world and we reclaim them back in the actual sense of the word. There is a frequency, there is a vibration. And when we all clap as 10,000 people and we become one body, one synchronized entity. But then when you are under the piano, right or you're in a close proximity inside your own band or your favorite band like i'm i created this experience because i want to sit in the middle of a quintet a string quintet they sat in a circle i was sat in the middle and that's how i realized oh if i put people on their piano they can get the same experience i'm getting right now being sat in the middle of the string quartet that participation mystic we all become one, but do what do we become one with? What even in that moment, right? If I play Mozart, you're becoming one with Mozart, right? And with everything he had access to, right? Those notes live in your body. So do we get access to collective unconscious? Do we get access to this subliminal or liminal space? Do we get access to this? field that connective field that unites all of us not just the parts of our brain and parts of our body but all of us mm. in that space time and that fits into everything i've experienced regarding synchronicity flow and i've experienced it climbing mont blanc and my guide said you know you climbing mont blanc is like me having three piano lessons and becoming a conductor of London Philharmonic. And you're not going to do it. And I said, you know what? You're wrong. I only have lessons and I'm going to do it. And I did it, but not because I wasn't experienced climbing, but because I know how to get into the state of flow. And I knew I was in the state of flow because after I flew down to Chamonix on the paraglide and I had two hours of sleep, and I woke up and I had no muscle pain, no recovery. I mean, my recovery already happened. How could it be if I'm not really a sports person or an experienced climber? Ah, you know, they tell us in a state of flow, recovery is 400% uh, better, right? If you are in a state of flow. And I'm sure you've experienced it in your games, right? Mm. But then we can experience it through music, we can experience it through art, we can experience it through Awen, just standing there oh. in a forest or watching, I know, listening to music, um, having a experience. So essentially, do we all have access to this invisible world? I think we do. Maybe what we're doing here and what I'm able to do when I play piano with you under my piano, I am a guide who can open the doors. But what enters through the doors is not me, it's not my talent, it's not my abilities. I'm just a skilled guide, a skilled door opener. But then is that field that we're all connected to anyway. 
just sometimes somebody has to open the door. One of, uh, I wanted to just cite one book that I think uh, for anyone who wants to do some follow-up on this, that's really worthwhile. And maybe you've read it too. It's another musician who's also a neuroscientist from University of McGill. His name is Daniel Levitin. And he wrote the book called This Is Your Brain on Music. Yes. It's a, it's a phenomenally accessible book to, to read and check in on. So the last zone I wanted to talk about. So if someone who's listening to this is uh, either stressed or is um, wanting to perform better at work, what kind of advice would you would you provide for them? Because they're going to be in their house, and they're listening to us wherever they are, walking their dog or 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 whatever. Um, and by the way, hi. Um, <laughs> uh, where? What would you? What? How? How can I bring music or into my life to help me perform better or to de-stress? What are you, what are the recommendations? Well, have? first of all, if you're listening now and you're in London, come and have a research with me because I still need research subjects. And then we can test this theory, right? This hypothesis. Does music make you less stressed and perform better as a consequence of you feeling less stress? If you do not have access to a music intervention like this, what could you do? Obviously, you could create those experiences for yourself. You could uh, lie in a shavasana. You can get spatial audio, right? You can uh, play sounds of uh, um, singing bowls. Basically, you can learn to play singing bowls yourself. You can get as many singing bowls as you can or as many percussive instruments as you can. We're all meant to play percussion. We are percussionists by first music experience, right? We can all sing. We can learn to chant. I would say if you are inclined, you can chant any kind of mantras. Uh, find your desired experience mantra and chant it. Find your note and chant it. Learn singing. You know, everybody can learn singing. Use your body as an instrument. You know, find your 432 hertz. Uh, you know, you can use an app on your phone to find where do you sound at 432 hertz. They say it's a magic frequency. You, you can test it for yourself. And then write to us and comment what worked for you. But if you're walking with your dog, I think you are already doing this. You're turning distress into you stress. So good luck to you anyway. You're doing things right anyway. Love it. Well, yeah. I'm going to, uh, we'll, we'll put some show notes so that people can go check out some singing bowls or the uh, the app that allows us to get to the 432 hertz. Just to close my, uh, and, and to bounce back off of what you said, something that I enjoy doing. Uh, first of all, I love to sing and play guitar, of course. Um, and I think music is, is a, it's a, I always integrate music into my day. And I think we, we don't do enough of that. We don't integrate enough beauty and art into our, our daily existence. And when I'm stressed, for example, if I have a big speech to make and, and I, I'm finding myself in a stressful place, what happens, of course, is that my, my vocal cords get tight. I start speaking higher, quicker. And the idea of, of going into some chant of a baser note, I try to 
find some lower mm-hmm. notes in my body it it first of all relaxes me yes and and i i find that useful and you you don't need to do it before speech you can just do mm. it before you have to write something important yeah just try to f- resonate deeper into yourself because and... the low sounds release dopamine and apparently you know you as the lower the better you know if you can chant low then you're gonna release dopamine for yourself or even listening to somebody chanting really low that will work hmm lovely well on these this lovely actionable <laughs> way to go it's been great having you on the show evelina so um and the idea of going over and, and listening going underneath your piano hopefully londoners uh take you up on that how can people contact you follow you understand your work um check out your your world record what are the best ways to track you down follow you yeah just uh, my name uh that you can see on here or in uh, the description of this podcast evelina delane you can find me everywhere you can find me on instagram you can find me uh facebook uh, linkedin um my email is evelina jazz gmail.com and uh yeah and remember remember uh if you're feeling stressed it's not a diagnosis it's just a state that's what i would like to 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 leave you with it's a state it's just a state and like you said states are transient so you can always change one state for the other so find out what other desired states you would like to have instead of the so we're going to call it negative affective state and positive affective state and do something that changes your state and you know if you would like to know more about it write to us and we're going to chat and find out how you can change your state in a is sometimes even a simple uh passing through the arch through the door you tell yourself i was in that state now i'm in that state and hopefully after you've listened to this your state has changed as well well i i feel elevated uh, in our conversation evelina evelator (laughs) (laughs) superlative thank you so much so a really heartfelt thanks for listening to this episode of the minter dialogue podcast if you like the show please remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast service As ever, ratings and reviews are the real currency of podcasts. And if you're really inspired, I'm accepting donations on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You'll find the show notes with over 2,100 blog posts on Minterdial.com on topics ranging from leadership to branding, tech, and marketing tips. Check out my documentary film and books, including the last one, the second edition, of artificial empathy, putting heart into business and artificial intelligence that came out in April 2023. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. stranger tucked around me precipitating the danger to feel free trust is a reason still i won't
scrolling through financial news and wondering how does any of this affect me how can i read a major headline and truly understand what impact that has on not only my portfolio 
but my life. Well, our goal on the podcast Inside the Street, hosted by Wall Street analysts at La Chiffre Partners, is to provide public investors and young professionals with a deeper understanding of the mechanics that drive those major headlines. And what better way to dive into these mechanics than hosting Wall Street analysts themselves to discuss the newest trends in finance firsthand? Well, on our show, we bring you real perspectives from the front line. Hearing these analysts give commentary has made our listeners much more well-versed on the financial markets. This approach to discussion allows our listeners to engage in conversation with much more educated opinions and predictions. So be sure to check out our show, Inside the Street, wherever you find your podcasts.